Hello and welcome. My name is Amrita Dhar and I am the director of the project Shakespeare in the Post Colonies, which is hosting a series of interviews with post-colonial Shakespeareans from around the world. In today's conversation, my collaborator Dr. Amrita Shen and I interview the South Asian inheritance British-based educator, screenwriter and novelist Preeti Taneja. Preeti, could you start us off today by telling us a little bit about yourself, about your post-colonial inheritance, but that you're in the UK. How has it been? Just a little bit about yourself, please. So um, I'm Preeti Taneja. I'm the Professor of Wild Literature and Creative Writing at Newcastle University, and I am a writer and activist and the author of two books. One of them is called We That Are Young, and it's a transposition or translation, as I call it, of Shakespeare's King Lear set in contemporary India. The second book is called Aftermath, and it's a kind of hybrid memoir based on my experience teaching prison and terrorism. A little bit about myself in terms of the question that you asked. Um, I was born and brought up in the UK, and I still live and work here. Um, I don't consider it to be a post-colonial relationship, obviously, because I don't really think there is such a thing as the post-colonial. I think it's a kind of just a thing that changes shape. Living and working, being British... I have a different perspective on that, perhaps, than people who um, are in the diaspora in different parts of the world. Can you talk a little bit more about, I mean, that I, I think I find myself agreeing that this is just something that has changed shape in large parts of the world, changed vocabulary, but hasn't really changed. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by there is no such thing as post-colonial in your assessment? Well, if you know um, the way that structures of power reiterate and repeat themselves um, and a little bit about the British system, what happened after 1947 in India, in the Indian subcontinent, basically translated uh, after the British left India to recreating empire back in Britain, essentially, through immigration structures. So we have a working class Muslim, Pakistani, Bangladeshi community, and we have a middle class and that includes mostly Hindus. They mostly work in professions rather than arts and culture. There's a strict kind of curatorial system that is in place here that has been 75 years in the making. And it rests on one extremely important thing, the fact that we do not teach empire at school in this country where I am in the UK. Um, so the real harms and damage of colonialism do not exist in the public consciousness generation after generation in this country. And that continues to allow for violence to be perpetrated and for ideologies to take root here because into that void which does not allow communities the dignity of origin stories, a number of ideologies are able to take root. So what you're looking at basically is a reiteration 75 years on of divided rural culture, which is extremely difficult to reverse at this stage. But luckily for us, we do have also a counterculture of solidarity, of resistance against whiteness and imperial, um, you know, human rights abuses, employment laws, segregationist practices, and so on, solidarities that cross Hindu-Muslim and solidarities that cross gender and solidarities that cross black and brown. Those unique things have arisen out of a particularly British context. The stronger they are, the more pushback there is from the state. Tokenism is alive and well in this country. Some of us are beneficiaries of that system and we carry the burdens of it too. It's a very interesting position to think and write from and to teach in. Yes, there is so much resonance. I grew up in Calcutta. So I was always told that, you know, we are literally post-colonial, that my reality is of political independence. I was born in 
independent India. And the older I get, the more I realize that, first of all, I did not grow up in genuinely post-colonial India. Perhaps I'm realizing that there is no such thing as actual post that is after colonial political reality. It's just changed. It's a kind of neo-colonial reality that India is in right now. And it's unfortunately very similar in this country too, where there is a great deal of pushback against grappling with what this country stands on, the US, that it stands on genocide, on chattel slavery, on continuing war. We don't like to talk about these things. And if we say, I mean, even something like just basic critical race theory, it's under legal attack in this country in multiple states. So it's not edifying really how similar. <laughs> the impact of transatlantic slavery on the Americas obviously has a huge and different relationship to racism, creates a different atmosphere. The fact that exactly. you know, guns are legal, exactly. the fact that your healthcare is not state provided, these important things make the situation in America more visible and more debated. And while in America, slavery was visible and present in the country, in the UK, the violence of slavery was hidden from public view because it took place in the Caribbean, in Jamaica. It took place in empire, in the colonies. The proceeds enriched British families at home. So people in England got very, very wealthy off the back of something that no one else could really see the horror of in the same way as obviously is visible in America itself. So that allows a culture of silence and denial that does insidious harm. There is an ongoing problem with racism in the police. There's an ongoing problem with the rise of right-wing fascism in this country. There's a kind of colonialized mindset in institutions which keeps people in place it really is very difficult to get ahead or to put your finger on what racism is actually doing and how it's operating through more insidious ways the biggest reason you're in this series is this fantastic novel we that are young which is i would say as a shakespeare studies person a brilliant trans creation of one of shakespeare's major plays King Lear. I had two questions to get us into this book. One is, what was Shakespeare like for you as you were growing up in your education, as you were coming of age? And second, what got you to write your first novel, your first major work as an afterlife of Shakespeare and especially King Lear? Well, to take the first question, what was Shakespeare to me? Shakespeare is the centre of the education system in literature in this country. From an early age, I was reading Charles and Mary Lamb, watching animated versions of Shakespeare on television. Um, there were filmed or televised BBC adaptations with great British actors. It was an effort all the time. And one cannot help but to be enthralled to the poetry and to the mystery as a child, you're open. And that sense of wonder and awe that what language can do and what mysterious things can happen and the plots of Shakespeare is so full of doubles and pretense and play acting and they delight children. I encountered Leah when I was probably 16 for the first time and it was on the national curriculum as the literature text for our exams, GCSEs and Midsummer Night's Dream was a, and Romeo and Juliet were the GCSE texts in the school I was at, and then King Lear was the A-level text. And like I said, there was no teaching about partition or empire in British education system. But I was very aware of that history because obviously I had heard the stories from my mother and grandmother, um, from my aunts and um, other relatives growing up. The reason I was born in England was <sighs> that history. My grandmother was a partition refugee. She was a young bride. She was pregnant with my mother, who was born in December in 1947 in Delhi. So it's very alive history for me, but it was never endorsed at school because there was no one talking about it. There was no books about it. It was almost like they were making it up. And then I studied Lear and everything clicked into place for me because they're at the centre of the English literature classroom. And I was an avid reader and literature was my subject. 
was the partition story, was the story of obedient daughters being made to perform, which is very comfortable territory, for, unfortunately, for South Asian women um, in diaspora families as well as in India, um, was the story of servants. I had seen, even in the most modest middle-class home in, in family members in Delhi, there were people doing jobs which we did ourselves at home in England. Um, who were employed by the household to do those jobs. So I was aware that there was a kind of feudal structure in the country of my parents' birth that they had left. And all of these things kind of fused for me. And then there was, of course, the poetry and the doubleness of the language and all of these ways in which truth speaks to power in that play. And it became something that was like a talisman for me. And it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that I decided to try to work through some of that, which has stayed with me all of my educational life and my work in human rights, to try to write this novel, which turned out to be me that I own. It's so interesting. I mean, in my family, both my parents were refugees of the partition. When I grew up, 1947 was not thought of, I'm a Bengali. 1947 was not thought of as the date of independence. At home, it was always referred to as the date of partition, the date where, um, when my parents, both their families, had to leave their homes and try to make a home in this new country that had just been sort of born as a nation in 1947. But it was not independence, it was partition. That was always the word that they used. Yes, the trauma lasts longer than that sense of a new nation state's borders being defined. And we are having this conversation as in the Indian subcontinent, the two countries that were then created, India and Pakistan, it's been 75 years since then. And the scope of this interview is not such that we can unpack what it means to be 75 years onwards from 1947. But there is a lot to talk about um, there. So in the novel, something that so resonated with me was how, and this is something very Shakespearean about you, how wonderfully you can depict what power actually looks like. That is, we know Devraj is this magnate. He is the hub of power. He is the person of the company. But this is something that you were just talking about, you know, that you have servants who do certain things for you, even though you're in a position to do those things yourself. You talk about this in more detailed, in more granular fashion, in the book, where you're talking about, for instance, in Delhi, what the garden looks like. Someone who knows Delhi immediately knows this is that arid bowl in the north of India, where any kind of ecologically responsible person is not going to have a green, green garden. Can you talk a little more about how you created the world of We That Are Young? how you made power visible, and then how you made the fissures in that world visible. I've been visiting Delhi for long periods of time through my childhood and adulthood. It's a very familiar city to me, a beloved city. And nooks and crannies of it, I feel a very personal and deep connection to, as well as certain areas of the city, which I've seen change and become more gentrified with the kind of changing fiscal nature um, of the country over time. To create the Delhi of We That Are Young meant taking all of those memories, but also being very true to the idea of myth and fairy tale, which the book is permeated with, and setting it in that epic space where anything feels possible. Because in India, I feel like, and in Delhi in particular, anything is possible if you have enough money. There's references that readers might catch or might not to The Wizard of Oz, The Yellow Brick Road, The Yellow Brick Wall, um, the lions and tigers and bears on the gate of the farmhouse. You're supposed to feel like you've landed in this space of possibility, but also that has a kind of brutal edge to it. I think geography, environment and place and the way in which money can manipulate that do have a lot to tell us about how power operates. Once you have that kind of money, what is there left to do except order the world to your will, right? So then you start thinking about, as a fiction writer, what might that feel like and what might that look like to read about? 
what do you want your reader to have as an experience? And for me, you know, to create a situation where monsters prey on themselves, you have to stand in the shoes of each character in turn and believe with them that they're right while you're writing them and then turn that kaleidoscope so the next character feels equally compelling and equally true and equally believable and your allegiance as a reader switches but you still remember that you were possessed by the previous character. I do that in the book through structure. So the book's told in six voices, five young people, the three daughters and the two sons that appear in Shakespeare's King Lear and Lear himself. And I fill in some gaps that Shakespeare leaves us to, for our imaginations, voicing a time period, which is a lost time period in Act 5 of the play, where Lear and Cordelia just disappear from the action until Edgar goes, oh, great thing, I've also forgot. And suddenly they, they come back. So, you, so in the novel, you get to know where they were and what was happening during that gap. And it's by kind of situating myself with each character in turn that I was able to create that prismatic sense of what power looks like and what those power hierarchies are. So obviously the patriarchy comes sharper into focus in that sense. It's a polyphonic narrative and it, and it comes from a carnivalesque literary philosophy, Bactinian philosophy for people who read that kind of, that bent to criticism. As a novelist, I love what plays can do, the space of the theatre, what the political theatre can do and for our consciousness as well as for our entertainment. My hope was to bring some of that hard-edgedness to the novel. Which you very much have. You mentioned the word epic. There is an epic quality to this play of Shakespeare's. Your chosen form, the novel, does enormous justice to that epic quality in size, in shape, in how many poetic voices you allow yourself. The writing is ultimately sometimes hard-edged, yes, often hard-edged, but it is poetic, which is something probably that you just do. But can you talk a little bit about this awareness of genre and you working through the qualities of the novel form, the epic form, and the theatrical form? Yeah, there's a writer whose work I really love, David Shields, and his book is called Reality Hunger. And in it, he writes, quoting from someone else, that genre is a medium security prison. And I believe that genre makes no sense to me. And I don't think it made sense to Shakespeare because the register, especially in Lear, goes from high to low in the same speech from the same character's voice. And it's very honest about the fact that we are what we read. And we read many things from adverts to Twitter to newspapers to literary journals to academic writing. We take in information through our eyes all the time and it creates our voice in our minds as well as the mother tongues. And I mean that in the plural that we have as post-colonial subjects or subjects of an empire or growing up and being born in countries that our parents did not grow up or were born in. For me, like playing like that is really exciting. I owe a lot to poetry. I loved learning through close reading of Lear, just how subversive language can be, the English language, which was the language of being civilized. It was the language of being outside my family home. It's the language of schooling, and administration. Yet here I was looking at this play at 16, 17, and learning that bond can mean money as well as love. And patriarchy is there, just there in that one word as you twist it. It feels very self, it feels very obvious to talk about these kinds of puns now, but back then it was what I found thrilling. You could do that with language and pass into the canon. That power could be critiqued through language and could still embrace that critique because the language was just so compelling and beautiful. And so it's a lesson in how to break down what we're constructed of and remake it to our own will. That's, I suppose, what writers do. That's what we are for. In doing that, we question language question power, we question the limitations of our own imaginations, we're pushing at the boundaries of something all the time and saying the form has no border, the sentence has no border, the possibility, because even if you think it ends at a full stop, there's still a depth you can achieve. It's a deep dive through two or three words that you can make and thrill a reader, just as you were thrilled when you first encounter it in someone else's writing. Right, and how infused we that are young 
also is, it relates to um, what you were talking about earlier, the specific realities of each person that is speaking, which also is in obvious ways dramatic. It is in obvious ways theatrical. It is in obvious ways Shakespearean. The play itself, of course, has, it's a play, but it has poetry. It has some of the finest poetry, I would say, in the English language. That too is clearly part of what you have taken from this work, King Lear. The book itself was something I set out to keep as closely as possible to Lear in its characterization, my reading of those characters, the language and the structure of the play, the scenes fell quite nicely into each character's section of the book and to cover everything I could about it. So it's got eco-criticism, it's got gender criticism, it's got religious and fundamentalist criticism. For me to know that from readers and other scholars that, that I was even a little bit successful at that is really wonderful. But at the same time, I, I really want to draw attention to the other intertextualities in the book because it's not just about the, it's about weaving together something for politics, for political fiction. You know, in this book, you're going to find Fies Amid Fies. You're going to find um, Rumi. You'll find Sanskrit aphorisms. You'll find protest songs, all sorts of different languages. Some I made up. There's places that don't exist in India that do exist in the book, but the rest of the places are real. There's a whole way of constructing a politics in fiction and using all those tools to make something that feels true to something at source, but also has to stand on its own and feel contemporary, and have arisen, just like second generation diasporic young people grow into yeah. many languages, into many worlds, carrying all this poetry that mimics inside our own brains. And this is how it came out. It didn't just happen, obviously. It took a long time to craft each sentence of that book, but its origins are in a celebration of hybridity. And I have to say that is true of Shakespeare's moment of writing this play, where he is inheriting what he is inheriting about the Lear story. The way he reworks it is about him existing as a writer in his moment. That's right. It's about that feeling of you have something that's happening, you have something to say. The world is changing. The lines on the map are changing around you. There's a new king in town. There are different rules on blasphemy. There are things you can say. There are things you can't say. And you have to find a way all the way around that in order to make art. I find it just absolutely stunning what happens between the 1608 quarto version and the 1623 folio version of the same play. And they kind of become different plays because of how Edgar looks. Right. Lucky me. I really like the fact that Edgar has the last word in the folio edition. And that's why he has the last word in the novel, obviously, because it gives the whole book its shape and its title and makes a lot of sense that it's that character, the new fascist, the new <laughs> dictator rises when they're old at all. That's what we're basically saying to borrow from Edmund. But you know, if I was to write We That Are Young Now, things have changed a lot. In my own thinking about what those characters might be and do, for example, Radha, who's one of my favourite characters, is the Reagan character from Lear. And the Radha in We That Are Young has very little power on the surface, but she has her own power in the technological world. She's running a Twitter account under anonymous handle, and she's kind of manipulating the share price of the company, which, of course, has ripple effects for millions of people. Um, but I was writing before Me Too. I think she would have had a different storyline almost if that had been happening around the same time of writing. So it's always interesting to see how your work dates and what you might do differently if you were doing it now. And yet you have to stay true to the moment you were in. As a literary critic, talking about this book, I am thrilled by the level of craft and the level of faithfulness of this work to Shakespeare's play. But at the same time, 
part of me wonders, well, what would have happened if it weren't as faithful? What would have sloughed off? What would have come in? And what kind of challenge was it? Or did it feel like a constraint to have Lear as the thing that came before this? The only real constraint with writing with big, big canonical texts with Lear, for example, is because the language is so compelling and so famous and it's so much inside the psyche that when you're writing those big set pieces like a storm scene or the love test, somehow Shakespeare's language creeps in <laughs> and takes over. So there's a constant thing about doing a little tussle with your own confidence or your imagination to say, how can I keep this in the world I'm constructing and let it stand on its own two feet with those flickering through of Shakespeare that people delight in if they know the play and they won't miss if they don't when they read the book. A lot of the reviews and a lot of commentators talk about how you place your novel, um, We That Are Young, in contemporary India. But I wanted to specifically ask you why you wanted to set it within a corporate setting. I mean, why not anything else? And I asked this because compare it with, say, for instance, Vishal Bhardwaj's cinematic adaptation. He set them in the murky Mumbai underworld. So his sort of preferred modus operandi almost is the criminal underworld. And so I was sort of curious to know why you chose to set your adaptation of King Lear in corporate India. I wanted to stay as true to the spirit of the play as possible. But I guess I'm interested structurally in the criminal overworld rather than the criminal underworld. For me, it's really corporate power that is the kind of architecture of our society these days. Global capitalism, when it's bolted into nation building, bolted into religious fundamentalism, that is really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the heart of power in the widest and broadest possible sense. I'm such a fan of the Bhagwaj adaptations and of his work. What they do is shine light on those particular localities, but even those localities are inside a bigger structure, which is capitalism bigger kind of way of thinking about how all of us are implicated is what I'm interested in in both my books in We That Are Young and in the second book Aftermath. So for me, you know, to think about the relationship between India and its roots in empire, for example, contemporary mm -hmm. India's roots in empire, which started off as a colonization through trade, through the East India Company, which is obviously going to lend itself to the idea of the Devraj Company and the ways in which the traces of empire have stayed and consolidated into what contemporary India is legally and fiscally and ideologically. It's not British, but it's just a kind of different iteration of fascism, in my view. And I think looking at money is always the way to understand that most clearly. It's so fascinating that you mentioned the East India Company because when you do refer to the Devraj's company as the company and it kept reminding me of the East India Company. I wasn't sure if that was just me. The yeah, there's nothing in that book that isn't intentional. It's interesting because when you're writing, you wonder, is this too obvious? Is this too on the nose, as they say? calling it the company, but it, it isn't. And I'm I'm a big fan of linguistic duplicity and plurality and of puns, essentially. So when I think about the company, I think about theatre companies, which is obviously a lovely way of referencing the play as its original form. And it's also the East India Company and the kind of global corporation that we're talking about. So yes, it was completely intentional. I'm British, you know, I was born in England. For me, growing up at the centre of that empire, the centre of that power, was the lens through which I wanted to critique what I see through the play. Mm -hmm. right. um, you know, when we think about it, you know, it really is because of the East India Company that Shakespeare came to India in the first place. So it's important that we acknowledge those chains of um, cultural dissemination and ch chains, obviously, in that sense of being enslaved to something. No, absolutely. In Calcutta, we, we, we were, you know, one of the very first areas that sort of came under direct company rule. And 
the city itself, at least in part, uh, traces its origins to the company. There might have been three villages that were already there, but it didn't come together at our global capital before the company. And the reason why we study Shakespeare here in Calcutta is, again, very much because of the company and specifically the elite class that it helped generate, right? Which would be Indian in skin, but English in all other sense. And I think it is equally important for us to acknowledge where we come from, right? From, from, from that extremely privileged background, which is by honesty. I think I'm sitting here talking about Shakespeare because I belong to the newly generated middle class that, that came into being because of the company in the 19th century and its aftermath. The other thing that, that struck me about that are young is something that goes back to Shakespeare's original play text, I think, which is the absent mothers. And I was wondering whether you could say a bit about the absent mothers and how they seem to haunt the novel, right? I mean, Jeevan's mother, of course, but also the mother of the three girls or also the girls. This question's always been a really interesting one because obviously our mothers play such a large part of in culture, cultural control and cultural conditioning in South Asian families and often as instruments of patriarchy as well. So when you remove that presence, you have a sort of anarchy, um, the possibility of anarchy and the possibility of true connection Taking it from the children's point of view, anyone who was close to a mother that they've lost will understand this, but they never die. Not only do they never die, but they become what we wish they were at any moment that we want them to be that. And of course, in reality, they may not have been the way we wish they were um, or can imagine them once they're gone, but they're not around to remind us that they're also human with complex foibles of their own, that they would also have got annoyed with us or told us off or whatever. But grief is a central kind of construction of the book. And the fact is that mothers do not exist in Lear in any embodied presence. So that gives the novelist an opportunity to think through, because obviously with transmuting or translating a play structure into a novel, there are certain things that formally you have to do that you can get away with not doing in plays. So where the play space allows you for some more kind of existential spaces to open up and silences and our suspension of disbelief works in different ways. You can cross the stage from London to Dover in two steps, or you can imagine that she's just not there. When you're writing a novel, those are the gaps that one has to fill because narrative demands that almost, or some kinds of forms of narrative. Of course, there are forms you can write in that you could probably replicate some of those more existential things. But my novel is sort of epic and hyper real, and it's got that glaze of social realism to it as well. So I had to answer those questions formally as an artist. What was Jeevan's relationship to his mother? How did they end up in America? What was her relationship to Devraj and to her husband with the girls? Because the Kashmir storyline in We That Are Young is the heart of the book, really. And everything in the book drives its way to Kashmir. Just as in the play, all the action drives its way to Dover. How to connect this family who are not Kashmiri to that land could only be through this missing mother. The annexation of the land could only happen through that marriage for this particular family, which is a synoptiki for Hindu state violence in Kashmir. I would actually like to hear more, especially with how you bring Kashmir in and how your novel effectively becomes a post-colonial critique, not just of Shakespeare, but also of the post-colonial state in effect. So if you could possibly say a bit more about that. So my background in human rights advocacy and reporting. So before I became a writer and now an academic or a teacher and a university professor, I worked for a long time in minority rights advocacy. I travelled 
extensively. And I'm very interested in the traces of the law and how the law replicates itself across time. So when you look at the Indian Constitution or the Indian Penal Code, you see these laws and practices that were enshrined by the British into the Indian system. So they're bolted into the psyche of what the nation state is and how it imagines itself. And they're very useful things for people to keep using. You've got Victorian era laws on gay rights, of shutting down the right to your freedom of sexuality. You've got colonial era laws on the powers of the army to act with impunity. And this is something that Vishal Bhargaj um, draws on very much in Heather as well, which is obviously set in Kashmir. And they just lasted into a period where the state's violence, the new nation state's violence, was very conveniently taking. So where, so when we step into those boots, what are we becoming? That's the question that Leah is asking us. When we think about becoming our elders or our predecessors in a legal sense of taking on those colonial era violences that allowed the British army to act with impunity towards Indians, and now Indians are using them against Muslims or people from different parts of the country, different kinds of minorities. What has the state itself become? What do you mean when you say post-colonial? Because I don't see any post in this whatsoever. And as a person who is in the diaspora and who lives again, like I said, in the sort of heart of empire, what I see in Britain is that this thing never ended. You know, they may the British may have quit India in 1947, but they just came home and recreated it here with the same structures of power, with the same kind of Hindus can rise in certain classes and Muslims may not. So we still have that here. And what we're seeing in in Britain at the moment is that void in our education system, because we don't teach empire history here, is now being filled by the same Hindutva violence of ideology um, that's happening in India. So we've had communal riots in Asian areas of Britain over the weekends, over the last few weekends. It's crazy. It's like watching partition re-unfolds in real time here at home. So the books, just to come back to the novel, the, obviously I wouldn't have written about that because the book came out five years ago and I was writing five years before that. But any good novelist with a journalistic background, especially or you're used to looking at minority rights abrogations as a barometer for fascism and fascism's rise, you can literally trace the playbook if you know what you're looking for, that's what I was doing when I was thinking about the presence of Kashmir and how to make story, that, that's weave that story in into the novel. Um, and luckily Shakespeare understood the viciousness that borders and boundaries do to our minds and to our lands and to women's bodies. <laughs> so it just translates the maps almost scene for scene onto that play. What's really intriguing is that both mothers, I mean, Dave Raj's wife as well as Stephen's mother, they seem to come from the margins. I mean, if not geographical margins, then certainly societal margins. If Dave Raj's wife is Kashmiri, and then um, which which sort of occupies its own type of politics, then Jeevan's mother comes from Punjab from an old family of performers. I got thinking about how during colonial rule, the profession of the dancer or the profession of the wife was actually criminalized. Whereas before this, that was not the case at all. That also seems to occupy its own type of further marginalization and persecution that empire scene seems to bring so the two women were doing like really interesting things in terms of pointing out the really fraught colonial legacies about you know specifically how we deal with the body of the nation in effect so more like a comment than a question but i really thought that was a really interesting and intriguing debraj's wife is a kashmiri pundit she comes from a pundit family the reason why he marries her is because of land laws that give him access as a non-Kashmiri to Kashmir. So when you say the margins, I mean, margins are relative to where you believe your centre is. And obviously, Pandit history is Nehru's history. So one of the main reasons why he wouldn't give up Kashmir is but promised a plebiscite that's never, still never happened. And all of this trauma 
was solidified in partition was because of that pundit ancestry. So in many ways, she was an elite, a daughter of an elite. This is a very, very heightened issue, this question of Kashmiri pundits versus the seven decades of sanctions that Muslims have faced in the valley. And the, the book, my personal view is that violence should not beget violence. Some of my dearest friends are Kashmiri pundits, people who I love in my family who brought me up. And, and yet I've worked in minority rights all my life. And I just think you know, at some point we have to kind of stop. Otherwise, where are we going with this? And opening a multiplex and flooding the place with tourism of a certain ilk isn't going to, it might be a panacea and change minds, but those things are still there under the surface. I mean, so many people have died. So many women have lost their husbands. So many sons have been disappeared. It's, it's extraordinary how many years of education have been lost. And so the book really tries to think through the legacies of that empire level violence and then capitalism bolted onto this settler colonialism, which is now creeping, creeping, creeping even further, which I could see coming on the ground when I was there, when I was researching the book in 2012. It came to fruition with the sweeping away of those protections, the constitutional protections three years after the book was published, but it's there in the book, that prediction. Yeah. There's a paragraph, I can't even remember what it says now, because I, I wrote it you know, a while ago, but there's a moment where Critic, who's the Kent character, tells Sita, the Cordelia character, that the constitution doesn't mean anything, and if he wants to, he'll just pay some money and sweep away that law that means that Kashmir has semi-autonomous states. And I wrote that in... Must have been 2016, 17. Yeah, yeah. But something else that I also wanted to talk about, which are the other voices, literary and otherwise, that enter the novel. Shakespeare, of course, but you start off with Kabir. And there are uh, references to the slumdog millionaire, but also do uh, Bollywood movies. I wanted to go out and talk about what the plurality of other literary and cinematic and creative texts are doing in the novel and perhaps how they might be working towards opening up another type of space. Intertextuality is a political choice for me. It's a craft. Um, it's a resistance choice. It creates an identity which won't be pinned down because it deborders us, it decolonializes us, and it allows us as hybrid people who come out of all of these different traditions, especially as women, as South Asian brown women with diaspora upbringings and colonial era influences. You speak English, you speak Bengali, you speak some Hindi, you understand the poetic traditions of all of those three places. You grow up with American culture dominating mainstream global culture. So how can we deny that when we're writing about the societies and the worlds that shape us? So for me to weave all of those things in together creates this um, refusal to think of nation-state borders as fixed boundaries for my imagination and for my identity and my body. And I think that's true of many, many millions of people who live within the word that is India, the word that is England. For me, you know, multiplicity in language and intertextuality is a way of making new worlds and expressing the world as I feel it, it really is. And obviously, if the setting was different, if the characters were different, if the novel demanded it, that would be different. But this novel demands that this world be accurately represented in all of its hybridity. That's a positive thing. Not I'm so ashamed that I'm miscegenated in some way. I'm not. Because we all are. There's no such thing as authenticity. There's no such thing as purity. Thankfully. The absolute horror of the pure and the authentic, right? It, it, it's much more fun and interesting and life-giving, I think, too. So much more life-giving. And I think, you know, that this novel and a lot of my work, this book, the next book, the stories, they upset people who want that. I have questions in England. How dare you write about Shakespeare with Shakespeare? 
I heard questions in India. Why don't you write about your own country? I have people in reviews can sound outraged that this book exists because it's doing something that shouldn't be allowed because it doesn't have a genre, it doesn't have a category, refuses categorization. And I think brilliant, just refuse, refuse, refuse. I love books that say no to literature in that sense. And I hope I always make that kind of art. Yes, absolutely. We also wanted to touch upon your newest book, Aftermath. Okay, so Aftermath is a creative non-fiction book. It's based on me thinking through a terrorist event I was involved in, in which a man I had taught in prison creative writing. After his release, he went on to commit an atrocity in which two people were killed, one of whom I, I knew very well. I worked with. So I was in the centre of this event in a very strange way, in my own centre. There were many centres and of course the real grief belongs to the families of the victims and the people who died. But because I taught creative writing to this person, because he was British Pakistani, I'm British Asian Indian, we have a shared South Asian origin history and partition and empire. And both of us born in this country, he was a little bit younger to me. So having that relationality in the context of the UK brings with it to me a certain set of responsibilities about how to think through grief, how to think through atrocity, and how to understand, again, these kind of structures of power that keep us incarcerated, immigration, poverty, austerity, the Tory policies that have marked the last two decades in this country and um, Tory shorthand for conservative so aftermath uses a lot of the same strategies as we that are young it uses a political intertextuality it, it's woven through a sentence level with poetry from abolition um poetics from bias and advice from resistance fighters um joy james from all sorts of places who, people who have come before me who've thought through prison, state violence, individual violence, and thought about this idea of what radical means. So for me to actually make that work was a kind of way of thinking through what happened and my position to it. And then I have to think as well about the literary life the li and literary culture and the literary culture's role in creating a divided society. If we read, therefore, we must find empathy through characters. If we write, therefore there must be something about us that's inherently good. If you teach Shakespeare to a man in prison and he writes a story, is he on his way to redemption? Now, these are very pervasive myths and they're bullshit. So the book really looks at what is behind some of those ideas, what kind of saviorism, hero narratives, fundamental mythic structures are behind some of those ideas. In the third section of the book, I look at a few different novels and short stories of very popular um, that have dealt with terrorism and police and um, Islamophobia and prison. And I contrast those with my experience of teaching men who were incarcerated in high security for three years. High security obviously means category A crimes, including terrorism. One of the books I look at is Margaret Atwood's Hag Seed, which is The Tempest, and it's set in a medium security prison in Canada, where the Prospero figure, Felix, goes into this medium security prison to teach a bunch of Calibans, her words, not mine, Shakespeare, and perform a version of The Tempest inside the prison. It's a really interesting book to look at in this context of white saviorism and racial injustice and the ways in which the school-to-prison pipeline works. And I'm also bringing this back to the UK all the time because I grew up here and this is the context I know the best. and the race elements in that as well. Um, because I think literary culture has a lot to answer for, the ways in which these stories get written, who gets to speak, how they get to speak, the reach they have when they speak is something that as writers and critics, we should be thinking about. That's the way in which Shakespeare really appears in Aftermath. 
and looking ahead to your future writing project, can you expect to find more of Shakespeare? Um, possibly not directly. I'm not working on a Shakespeare trilogy of my own, but I don't think that what I've learned from the language and the poetry and the structure of polyphony and the ways they think about dramatic themes, which are obviously inspired and inflected in a fuse with Shakespeare, will ever go away. So can I talk a little bit more about the unearned access that Shakespeare has? This is a really big subject, which I alluded to a little bit earlier. So on the one hand, there's the undeniable fact of the beauty of the poetry and the language and the sophistication of thought and theme and human feeling in the plays and in the sonnets. Undeniable. Then there's the question of dissemination, which happens through colonialism. Then there's an earlier question of how come Shakespeare in his own time became Shakespeare so that he was the one they took on the boat to take him to India and all the colonies, right? So new historians, historians and Shakespeare scholars and early modern scholars are thinking about that question. Who did this guy elbow out of the way? What culture perpetrated the myth of Shakespeare in, in Shakespeare's time? But we all know that in our own literary culture, the market gets behind a select bunch of people, but that doesn't mean that those who are not selected are no good. So we don't know what we've lost. We don't know from that period of the 16th, 17th century, 18th century, who else we could have heard from by the time we got to the 20th or 21st century, because that was decided for us before we were even imagined. And yet, Empire made sure that that particular set of works reached all the corners of where the sun never sets. We could call that unearned access. Indian Shakespeareans, Indian poets of all different Indian languages took that work and they did what they wanted to with it. And they did what they needed to with it politically and artistically. And that gives it a richness and an afterlife that no one can control anymore, nor should it be controlled. Right. Well, thank you, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to this podcast, spread the word and leave a review. Do take a look also at our project website at shakespearepostcolonies.osu.edu for materials supplementing this conversation and for further project details. Thank you for listening and until next time. For the Shakespeare in the Post Colonies project, I am Amrita Thorpe.